as it has been our joy and delight to work our way through the book of Acts. And today we are concluding that series and that study. We're going to be looking at the last two verses of chapter 28. And uh, we've been in this book for a little over a year now, and uh, it is our joy and privilege to finish it out, and Lord willing, finish it out strong. And then next weekend, as we've talked about, we'll have Dale Ralph Davis here, and Lord willing, the week after, we'll start a new series in the Gospel of Luke. So much to look forward to, and uh, grateful for your diligent listening and hearing to God's Word, both read and preached. We're going to be looking at the last two verses of chapter 28 and then turning to 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He, that is Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then from 2 Timothy chapter 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. You may be seated. If you are a reader, then you know that there is a love-hate relationship when you come to the last chapter of a book, especially one that you have thoroughly enjoyed. And even if you are not a reader, perhaps there are those of you that enjoy TV or movie series, and you obviously want to know how the story concludes, but at the same time, you do not want it to end. And there is a lamenting when it is. Because you feel so connected to the characters and to the story that has been told. You have journeyed with them through the highs and through the lows. And when it is over, it is almost like a death. They are no longer there. Well, any good author or any good producer will tell you that the ending is important. And oftentimes, they will always write in such a way that they have the ending in mind. Some would even say that they write the ending before anything else. They do this not only so they know how it is going to conclude, but how to get there, how to navigate to the end. The same is true of life. If your life was to be compared to a book, it is a book that is being written. Some of you are in the beginning chapters. Some of you are in the latter chapters. And others are somewhere in between. But I wonder this morning if you have your last chapter already written, where you will end up. Now you might protest and say, well, I don't know. How can I write the ending if I do not know it? And if that's your idea and if that's your thought this morning, then I would tell you that you are wrong. You have to have the end in mind. Sure, you may not know how it will exactly end. You may not have all the details. You may not know all the twists and turns that will lead to it, but you should know the end results, what it is that you will accomplish, what it is that you want to achieve, what it is that you are striving for, and ultimately the legacy that will be left behind. 
Because as the saying goes, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Well, as we come to the end of the book of Acts, a book that I mentioned, we have been in for a little over a year. We see the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's recorded mystery. And what we see with it, along with his last words of his last epistle, that of 2 Timothy and that of chapter 4, some have called it Paul's last will and testament. You see that Paul had the conclusion in mind. He had written the last chapter of his book long before it was lived out. As a result, it came to pass as he planned. You see, the Apostle Paul's life was an intentional life. It was a well-lived, well-planned life. So this morning, we want to examine once again the life of the Apostle Paul before concluding our study of the book of Acts and ask what made him who he was, what allowed him to live life so well and even to die well in the hopes that we would do the same, that we would live well as well as prepare to die well. And so we'll see that in three points this morning. Paul, the convert. Paul, the contender. And Paul, the crowned. First, Paul, the convert. Perhaps as we read those last two verses of Acts, you might have thought, hey, wait a second, this was not the conclusion that I was expecting. It leaves me hanging. And in many ways it does. For eight chapters now, almost a a third of this book, we've seen Paul imprisoned, waiting for his trial to be resolved. And we get to the end, and we still don't know if it has been resolved. Was Paul exonerated or was Paul convicted? We can only speculate. All we do know from church history is that the Apostle Paul and Peter were executed. They were martyrs, and they died most believe the very same year, that of 65 A.D. Peter by crucifixion and Paul by being beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. But we see these two central figures, do we not, throughout the book of Acts, which is actually one of the ways that you can outline this book One of the ways that you can outline it, and we've seen this, is geographically. You remember in chapter 1, we are told that uh, Christ tells his disciples that you will be my disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you can see that expansion throughout this book from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. But the other outline is that of the two main characters First of Peter, chapters 1 through 12, and then of Paul, chapters 13 to the end. And the argument could be made that Paul actually eclipses Peter, which is actually quite an amazing statement. Because if you think of the apostle Peter, you're reminded that he was the rock. He was the pillar. He was the right hand man of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his life, and the Lord used him tremendously. But when we think of the expansion of the kingdom of the church 
to the ends of the world, it was Paul, not Peter, that was primarily used for this work. Paul was the figurehead for the missionary expansion. And what makes that even more amazing, that reality so true, is what it took for Paul to be that. And all of us know the conversion story of Paul so well. It is told in this book many times that Paul was the one that was responsible for the stoning of Stephen, the deacon of the church who became the first Christian martyr. And then yet, the very next chapter, chapter 8 on the Damascus Road, on his way to arrest other Christians, no doubt to do exactly what he had done to Stephen, both of men and women, he encounters the living Christ. He sees the glory of the risen Lord, so much so that it knocks him to the ground, and in fact makes him blind. And for three days we read that he could not see. And in those three days, I believe that he experienced the misery of his sin. Just as Jesus was in the tomb for three days, so too Paul at that time, Saul, was in a tomb-like state. The Lord turned out the lights. It was completely dark. He shut out the world to the apostle Paul. And Paul, in that time, experienced spiritual death. And it wasn't until Ananias comes does he not only receive his sight, but he receives God's grace and receives the gift of salvation and a true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding of that which Christ was sent to redeem and to save sinners. And I tell you what, that changed everything. That was indeed his conversion. Paul the Pharisee, or I should say Saul the Pharisee, the persecutor, the zealot, at that time died. And Paul the apostle, the herald of the Lord Jesus Christ, was born again into newness of life. His eyes were opened, both his physical eyes, but even more importantly, his spiritual eyes. And he understood his own sin and understood his own need for Christ. In fact, Paul can summarize his life in this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord that he considered me faithful and appointed me to service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Do you hear how Paul describes himself before Christ? A blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent, an unbeliever. Now, did he think of himself as those things before his conversion? Of course not. In fact, he thought of himself as a good person, even a godly person, one that was doing the will of God, And what changed his mind? What changed his perspective? He met Jesus. I know that sounds very simplistic, but it is not. He encountered the risen Lord, and that changed everything. He was changed radically. Paul says, I received 
mercy. I didn't know I needed mercy, but I needed mercy, and I received mercy. I received abundant mercy and grace from Christ. Friends, if there is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures, and especially in the book of Acts, and especially in Paul's life, is the absolute need for conversion. To put it as simply as possible, conversion happens when we encounter Christ. When we understand that he is the Savior of the world, the risen Lord and King of kings. And he is not a general Savior for generic sinners. No, he is a specific Savior for a specific sinner, namely you and me. We just concluded our new members class, and in that class, as I taught on the gospel, I said to that class, if you were the only sinner that was on planet earth, Jesus would still have had to come and shed his blood for you to be saved. And if you understand the gospel in that way, when the gospel comes home, when it comes to bear on your heart that you understand that Christ died for you, then that changes everything, everything. That it changed the apostles Paul's life. He was never to be the same again. And that conversion changes everything about us as well. And it must, because we have gone from death to life, and we are not the same person anymore. Have you ever noted the name changes in Scripture? Abram goes to Abraham. Jacob goes to Israel. Simon to Peter. Saul to Paul. And it always comes after encountering God in a radical way. Now, I'm not saying that you have to change your name this morning, but you do have to change your identity. Your identity is no longer you. No, you died, and the you that still remains is now in Christ, and in Christ alone. All of us, I trust, have gone through the waters of baptism, and what is symbolic about baptism is the fact that God puts his name upon us. We are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We are baptized in the name of the triune God, and we are marked out as Christians. So, Christian, are you living your namesake this day? Are you a reflection of who you are? Are you a reflection of whose you are? And does the watching world know it? When they see you, they go, that's a Christian. That's one that represents his God. That is one that represents his Christ, his Savior, through the way that he acts, the way that he lives, the way that he talks, the way that he thinks. With the Apostle Paul, you saw exactly that. This radical change, this radical shift. And the Apostle Paul can again, summarize his life in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to say, I received this mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Do you hear what Paul is saying? I get to proclaim that the Lord was able to show me mercy. And if he was able to show me mercy as the chief of sinners, then this is true of all. That he is not only willing to give me mercy, but he is willing to give you mercy. And if we see ourselves in the same way as the Apostle Paul, if we see ourselves as the foremost or the chief of sinners, then there is no one that the Lord cannot save. You can never say, oh, oh, Joe over there or, or Jane over there, well, they are just as lost as an Easter egg. And there is no hope, there is no way that the Savior is going to save them. They are way too gone. Listen, if the resurrected and ascended Savior is still on his throne, which he is, then there is always hope for all, for everyone. There is hope for me, and there is hope for you. And therefore, it's our joy to proclaim, along with the Apostle Paul, the salvation of Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in that very verse, can say, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Do you hear what that says? Jesus Christ, his purpose of coming into the world was to save sinners. And what I see before me this morning, I see a lot of lovely people. I see a lot of people that are well-dressed, and I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful for that. But what I see in front of me is a whole room full of sinners that have been saved by Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. That is conversion. That is new life in Christ. And I hope you know that reality and that you are living out that reality every single day. Well, second then, we not only see Paul the convert, but Paul the contender. As radical as was the conversion of the Apostle Paul, it was only the, the beginning, wasn't it? As his path, his trajectory was changed. And it was changed not only to be a now proclaimer of the faith, to be a keeper of the faith, to be a defender of the faith, as important as those are, but also be a contender for the faith. And what do I mean by a contender? Well, if you're a sports player, or at least a fan, you know the difference between those that play and those that contend. There are those that play, but there's only a few that really contend, those that really have a shot at winning it all, right? For example, the Georgia Bulldogs, they're contenders. Don't get too excited, Georgia Bulldog fans, but they're contenders. The Atlanta Falcons, maybe not so much, right? But when you think of the Apostle Paul's life, he was not just satisfied of playing the game. No, he was a contender for the faith. He wanted to be the foremost. He wanted to excel he wanted to give his life with that kind of passion, that kind of vigor. We hear of this in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul has to defend his ministry against false apostles and teachers, those that were bragging of who they are and what they were able to do and what they were able to accomplish. And, and Paul kind of gives himself into it as a, a way of analogy. And it, he essentially says, well, if anyone desires to boast... He says, I speak as a fool. I will also dare to boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. 
Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? He goes on to say, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, he says. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again and again. Five times I received from the Jews. Forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. And he, he goes on to say of all the things that he has endured for Christ. And he wants to say, if, if we want to compare resumes, we can play that game. But that's not what it's about, he goes on to say. It's not about who can boast, but rather who we can boast in. If we're going to boast, Paul says, let us boast in Christ. And therefore, any effort I can give, anything I can do or accomplish is for his sake. And for that reason, Paul was willing to give his all to the very end. You hear him say that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which we believe were some of his last written words. This was probably days, if not weeks, before he knows that he is going to be put to death. And he says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. That was a reference or a metaphor, analogy of the Old Testament sacrificial gift and offering. He says, my life is an offering and it is being poured out and the the very last drops are being poured out at this time. He says, I've given my life as an offering to God. He says it even more clearly in Romans, in Romans chapter 12. You remember that great epistle, that great book. For 11 chapters, he writes about theology and doctrine, and it's not until chapter 12 does he get to his very first application. And what is his very first application after this great doctrine of what God has done, how God has saved us from death unto life? He says this, Therefore, Therefore, in the light of all that Christ has done, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says God does not want bulls or goats or lambs any longer. He wants you and he wants all of you. And so offer up yourself, your body, your soul, your spirit, your life to Christ. For he's not only your Savior, but he is your Lord. He's the one that owns you. He has bought you. You are not your own. You are his servant. I know those are foreign words and foreign concepts to us, especially as Americans, because we pride ourselves in being free and having rights and doing what we want to do when we want to do it. But no, Not in Christ. We have been bought at a price. Therefore, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to Christ. And again, isn't Apostle Paul a a model of this? He's able to say in Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For Paul, it was Christ in me and me in Christ. 
my life in him. That desire drove Paul in all that he did to contend for the faith and to be a contender for the faith and not just be on the sidelines, but to be a part of the work of the Lord. So as you think about your life and you think about your conversion, can you also say that is the same desire for you? Are you saying, Lord, I don't want to just take up air and space, but I want my air, I want my breath to be for you. And the space that I occupy, whatever space that is, be it for your glory. If it is as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or as a single person or as a worker or as a neighbor, no matter what title you wear, is it for Christ? Is it for his purpose? Is it for his glory? Let me be about your kingdom, Christ. Be a part of the game, the work, driving the ball down the field. I don't want to just be on the sideline. I don't want to just fill a pew. I want to be a participant. I want to be a contender. That's the language that Paul uses, doesn't he? When he says, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's the language of competition, of contending. And in the Greek, it is even more stark. It actually begins with the noun. In other words, it reads this way, the fight I have fought, the race I have run, the faith I have kept. And so this morning, as you think about your life, are you in the fight? If you are, stay in the fight. Keep punching, as it were. If you're in the race, stay in the race. Don't give up. Keep putting one foot in front of the other amidst affliction, amidst difficulty, amidst that desire to to give up. And don't veer off to the right or don't veer off to the left. But rather, as the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And why do we do that? Well, ultimately, because we know the end is coming. And it may be coming sooner than we realize. And that's why, third, we see not only Paul the convert and Paul the contender, but Paul the crowned. Luke can end his writing by saying Paul lived there for for two years. In what state? We're not quite sure. It could have been imprisoned. It could have been as a free person. But it says that there he was welcoming and proclaiming and teaching with all boldness and without hindrance, spending and being spent for the kingdom. And you might ask the question, was it, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Because as you read the Apostle Paul's life, as we have studied it, we've seen that it has been difficult. Even Paul says, I, I've, I've been poured out. I have fought. I have run. That's the language of struggle and hardship, isn't it? And so, is it worth it? Is following Christ, the Christian life, worth it? And we've got to ask that question because we don't want to start and not finish. Because not finishing is worse than not starting at all. In fact, Jesus tells us this, doesn't he? When he says, which of you desiring to build does not first sit down, count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it will mock and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We want to be able to finish, don't we? We don't want to finish with a, a whimper or barely making, but we want to finish well. And I think that was the Apostle Paul's 
major concern. In fact, he says as much in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. After preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You hear what he says? I, I do not want to run aimlessly. I do not want to be as one beating the air. I want to keep myself under control so that I would not be disqualified. After preaching Christ to others, I myself would somehow scandalize Christ. And so I do not want to run in such a way that I would be disqualified, but rather run in such a way to be under control, self-control, so as to finish, and in fact, to win. In Christian life, we know all has a path. All of us have a path to run. And I cannot run your race, and you cannot run mine. And your race is different than my race. But we want to run in such a way with the path that God has given us to, to compete, to run, to fight, so as to win. Well, how do we do it? Well, we cannot do it on our own. That's what we must confess and testify. We cannot finish the faith or fight the good fight of faith in our own power or our own strength. Rather, it's Christ in us. The one who said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's the Apostle Paul that is looking to Christ. It's every Christian that is looking to Christ. That is the way that we compete. That is the way that we run. That is the way that we finish. The Apostle Paul would not have made it if it were not for Christ. And you will not make it if it is not for Christ. But here's the good news. That if you have Christ and you're in Christ, then you have all that you stand in need of. Not to stumble, not to limp across the finish line, but to finish strong. Because indeed, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the Apostle Paul can say, as he writes these final words, my departure has come. My fight is coming to an end. My race is nearing the finish line, but what lies ahead, he says, the crown of righteousness. In Greek athletics, the winner would not receive a, a medal like we would see at the Olympics, but rather a laurel wreath on their head. And Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 9, that the athlete endures all things, and they endure all things to receive a perishable wreath. But he says, but we have an imperishable crown. What a beautiful analogy of this life versus the life to come. Anything that we are able to accomplish here, anything that we are able to win, it is perishable. Even the greatest of achievements, isn't it? All are as nothing. But all that is done for Christ, that is everlasting. That is eternal. There we receive an eternal imperishable crown, the crown of righteousness. And it says it is coming when he appears, when he comes back for all that long for his appearing. Christ indeed is coming back 
Again, you remember in chapter 1 as Jesus ascended and the angel comes and says the same Jesus who is taken up will come back in the same manner. Just as you saw him go up, so in the same manner he will come back again from heaven. And so this morning, can we see the sight? As we look towards the end, can we see the glory that awaits Can we see it with with eyes of faith? Can we be like Moses that was able to climb up on the mountain and look into the promised land, look into the future glory? So too this morning, can we with eyes of faith see the beauty that is before us and how wonderful and how amazing it will be? And I tell you, as wonderful as you think it is, as amazing as you can even contemplate, it is far, far more exceedingly than all of that. Why? Because the scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And so is it worth it? You tell me. No one can answer that but you. But I think you know the answer, don't you? And we are to run the race. And I know it's wearisome. I know you get tired. We are to keep the end in sight. Finish with this story. John Stephen Akwari from Tanzania competed in the 1968 Olympics. And his competition was the marathon. And this Olympics was in Mexico City. A few miles into the race, he began to cramp up due to the high altitude. But he kept going. Even worse, at mile 11... He tripped and fell when jockeying for position with another runner, and he fell to the ground, and he dislocated his knee and severely hurt his shoulder, and he received medical attention for a time, and yet despite the medical staff's recommendation, he got up and he kept going, and he finished the race, and no, he did not win the race. In fact, he came in dead last. And afterwards, he was asked why he did not stop, why he did not quit. And these were his words. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Dear believer, if you come this day and you know the life-giving salvation that is in Christ, of his service, of his dedication, of his love to you. In the light of this, can we not give back to him our service, our dedication, our life to Christ? Will we not continue to run and fight and contend? So in the very end, we can say, like the Apostle Paul, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. Amen. Even come quickly, Lord Jesus, we would pray. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you for the witness, the example of the Apostle Paul, though not a perfect man by any means, one that would call himself the foremost of sinners. You gave him mercy so that he may be an example of the mercy and the grace that you are able to give to all. And Lord, indeed, we have received that mercy and grace. We have received the love 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this day it is set before us. It is made evident. And Lord, we not only want to receive it, but as a result, we want to be energized by it. We want to be revitalized so as to run and to run with more diligence, to fight with with greater fervor and love for you. We want to be those that contend and compete, O Lord, for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, keeping the end in mind, what lies ahead? What will be there at the finish line? when we are able to see face-to-face our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to receive that imperishable crown, the crown of righteousness. Lord, what a blessing, what a day that will be. Lord, if that would be when we die and go to be with you, or if you come back to be with us, Lord, would we long for your appearing? Would we long for your coming? We would even pray, even come quickly, Lord Jesus, for that is our desire. And that is our hope. And Lord, if that would be long off or be it near, Lord, give us all that we stand in need of to love you, to serve you all of our days. We pray this in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.